From New York, this is Democracy Now! Ground operations by the Israel Defense Forces and continued bombardment are eating civilians, hospitals, refugee camps, mosques, church, and UN facilities, including shelters. No one is safe. The UN Secretary General repeats his call for an immediate ceasefire as the death toll in Gaza tops 10,000, including 4,000 children. We'll speak to an American doctor who just left Gaza through Rafa and the founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, which runs the only pediatric cancer unit in Gaza. Israel's just ordered the hospital with the unit to be fully evacuated. Plus, we look at how President Biden's refusal to support a ceasefire in Gaza could impact his reelection chances next year as his support among Arab Americans is plummeting. And Donald Trump took the witness stand Monday in a civil fraud case brought by the New York Attorney General Letitia James that puts the future of his business empire in jeopardy. He rambled. He hurled insults. Um, but we expected that. At the end of the day, um, the documentary evidence demonstrated that, in fact, he falsely inflated his assets to basically enrich himself and his family. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations warns a tragedy of colossal proportions is underway in the Gaza Strip one month after Israel laid siege to the Palestinian territory and began a round-the-clock bombardment. On Monday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres renewed his urgent call for an immediate ceasefire, citing the more than 10,000 Palestinians killed by Israel strikes. Over 4,000 of the dead are children. Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. Earlier today, the Israeli military ordered the immediate evacuation of Al-Rantisi Children's Hospital in Gaza City. Israel already shelled the hospital two days ago and is threatening to bomb the building. After headlines, we'll speak with the president and founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, which established the Gaza Strip's only pediatric cancer center at that hospital. On Monday, Israel's military admitted it struck a convoy of ambulances outside Al-Shifa Hospital last week. Those attacks killed 15 people and wounded dozens. This is Hanid Abdelhakim Saad, a patient who narrowly survived the assault. The ambulance came to take us to Egypt for treatment. While we were on the road, they started firing at us, and the ambulance in front of us was hit. The people in front of us were martyred, and we were moved back to Al-Shifa Hospital. I lost consciousness and woke up in the hospital. They told me that I had debris in my mouth and that I had a 3% chance to make it, that my condition was very critical. I have a fracture in the head. My shoulder is dislocated. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Monday Israel will take responsibility for security in the Gaza Strip indefinitely once its military operations in the besieged Palestinian territory are complete. Netanyahu also rejected international calls for a ceasefire to allow the unfettered delivery of humanitarian aid. Well, there will be no uh, ceasefire, general ceasefire in Gaza without the release of our hostages. As far as tactical little pauses, an hour here, an hour there, we've had them before. I suppose uh, we'll check the circumstances in order to enable uh, 
the goods, humanitarian goods to come in or our hostages, uh, individual hostages to leave. But I don't think there's going to be a general ceasefire. On Sunday, Netanyahu suspended Israel's Jerusalem Affairs and Heritage Minister, Amichai Eliyahu, after he claimed there are no non-combatants in the Gaza Strip and said that dropping a nuclear bomb on the Gaza Strip's an option. This comes just days after an Israeli lawmaker from Netanyahu's ruling Likud party took to social media to incite genocide, writing on the social media site X, formerly known as Twitter, Galit Distel Artbaryan, wrote, quote, erase Gaza from the face of the earth, let the Gazan monsters rush to the southern border and flee into Egypt or die, unquote. South Africa has recalled its ambassador to Israel for consultations, joining a growing list of nations that have withdrawn diplomatic personnel in protest of Israel's assault on the Gaza Strip. Foreign Minister Naledi Pandur said Monday South Africa is extremely concerned at the continued killing of children and innocent civilians in the Palestinian territories. We believe the nature uh, of response by Israel has become uh, one of collective punishment which falls fully outside of the practice of international humanitarian and international human rights law. Over the weekend, the governments of Chad and Honduras also recalled diplomats and embassy staff from Israel. And at the Vatican, Pope Francis on Sunday again renewed his urgent plea for a ceasefire and humanitarian aid for Gaza. In Washington state, hundreds of protesters peacefully blockaded the entrance to the port of Tacoma Monday, delaying the loading of weapons onto a U.S. military supply vessel bound for Israel. It's the same ship that met a similar protest Friday in the port of Oakland. Organizers say they'll continue to track the ship's travel and will hold more protests wherever it sails. Here in New York, about 500 members of Jewish Voice for Peace and their allies rallied at the Statue of Liberty Monday to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. Protesters wore black T-shirts reading, not in our name. In a statement, Jay Saper of Jewish Voice for Peace said, quote, the famous words of our Jewish ancestor, Emma Lazarus, etched unto this very monument, compel us to take action supporting the Palestinians of Gaza, yearning to breathe free, he said. Aid agencies are sounding the alarm over the plight of Afghan refugees who've been forced to sleep in the open without proper food, shelter, sanitation, water after fleeing Pakistan to avoid arrest and deportation. An estimated 270,000 people have crossed the border after Pakistan's government gave undocumented immigrants until the end of October to leave. Authorities have since gone door to door demanding immigration documents and have used bulldozers to raise homes in Afghan communities. Human Rights Watch warns the crackdown has led to detentions, beatings and extortion. This is 50-year-old Afghan immigrant Abdul Rahim. These people are being very cruel to us. If they had given us four to five months more, we could have spent the winter here in comfort. Then, God willing, we would have gone back to our country. Ukraine's government says Russian airstrikes in the Black Sea city of Odessa have wounded eight people, destroying stocks of food and damaging Ukraine's main grain port. The strikes also damaged several exhibitions at the Odessa Fine Arts Museum. On Monday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky ruled out conducting elections in 2024, saying they should remain suspended while Ukraine is under martial law. We all understand that now, in wartime, when there are many challenges, it is absolutely irresponsible to engage in topics related to an election in such a frivolous manner. I believe that elections are not appropriate at this time.
Meanwhile, NBC News reports U.S. and European officials have begun quietly talking to Ukraine's government about possible peace negotiations with Russia to end the war and what Ukraine might need to give up in order to reach a deal. Here in the United States, Donald Trump took the witness stand Monday in a civil fraud case brought by the state of New York against the former president and his businesses. Trump was repeatedly admonished by Judge Arthur Nguyen for testimony that veered off topic and for lashing out against the court and New York Attorney General Letitia James, whom he called a political hack. James is seeking $250 million after accusing Trump, his two oldest sons, the Trump Organization and company executives of inflating the value of assets. The judge has already ruled Trump is liable for fraud. The, Trump, the trial will determine how much the Trumps will pay in damages. We'll have more on the Trump civil trial in New York later in the broadcast. In Colorado, another police officer has been acquitted in the 2019 killing of Elijah McClain. McClain's mother, Shanine McClain, wept as the jury declared Aurora officer Nathan Woodyard not guilty of homicide and manslaughter. Elijah McLean, a 23-year-old black young man, was walking home from the store when he was tackled by police, placed in a carotid hold, and injected with the powerful sedative ketamine. Woodyard was the officer who put McLean in a neck hold. Just one of the three officers involved in McLean's killing is facing prison time after being convicted of criminally negligent homicide in October. A second officer was also acquitted last month. In Atlanta, dozens of activists have been arraigned on RICO charges for their involvement in protests against the construction of a massive $90 million police training complex known as Cop City. At least 57 of 61 protesters charged appeared in court Monday as hundreds of other Stop City, Stop Cop City organizers rallied outside in support. Georgia's Republican Attorney General Christopher Carr issued the sweeping indictment over two months ago, using the state's Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act to target the protesters. Many of them had already been charged with domestic terrorism. The ACLU and other rights groups have condemned the charges in an attempt to silence the Stop Cop City movement. In Illinois, the father of the suspect behind the mass shooting at last year's July 4th parade in Highland Park has pleaded guilty to seven misdemeanor counts of reckless conduct. The charges carry a maximum sentence of one year in prison. Prosecutors say during the trial, Robert Cremo Jr. knew that his 19-year-old son had a history of threatening deadly violence, yet sponsored his son's application for a permit to purchase an assault rifle. The July 4th attack killed seven people and left 48 others wounded. And voters across the United States are heading to the polls today for statewide and local elections. In Ohio, voters will weigh in on a measure that seeks to establish the right to an abortion in the state constitution. Ohioans will also vote on legalizing recreational marijuana. In Virginia, where the entire legislature is on the ballot, Democrats are vying to retain their narrow control of the Senate and flip the House of Delegates to stop Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin from enacting his right-wing agenda on abortion, education, taxes, and other other issues. Maine has a ballot initiative that could lead to the creation of the U.S.'s first statewide publicly owned electric utility company. Kentucky, Louisiana and Mississippi all have gubernatorial races. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we'll speak with an American doctor who just left Gaza through Rafa. 
And we'll speak with the founder of her organization, Palestine Children's Relief Fund, which runs the only pediatric cancer unit in Gaza. Israel's just ordered the hospital housing the unit to be fully evacuated. Back in 30 seconds. of the Narcissus by Palestinian artist Miral Ayad. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Israel is threatening to bomb a children's hospital in Gaza that houses the enclave's only pediatric cancer unit. Earlier today, the Israeli military ordered the immediate evacuation of our Antisi Children's Hospital in Gaza City. Israel already shelled the hospital two days ago. This comes as Palestinian health officials say the Israeli bombardment of Gaza has killed over 10,000 Palestinians, including 4,000 children, since October 7th, when Hamas attacked Israel, killing up to 1,400 people while seizing about 240 hostages. On Monday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres repeated his call for an immediate ceasefire. Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. More journalists have reportedly been killed over a four-week period than in any conflict in at least three decades. More United Nations aid workers have been killed than in any comparable period in the history of our organization. We begin today's show with two guests. Steve Sosby is the president and founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, an organization that provides medical and humanitarian aid to Palestinian children in Gaza and the West Bank. The fund runs the pediatric cancer unit inside our NTC Children's Hospital. He splits his time between the occupied West Bank and Kent, Ohio, where he joins us today. And we're joined by Dr. Barbara Zind pediatrician who traveled to Gaza October 6 to support the Palestine Children's Relief Fund after nearly a month trapped in Gaza. She was finally evacuated through the Rafah border crossing and arrived back home Monday. She's joining us from Grand Junction, Colorado. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Steve Zosby, let's begin with you. Can you talk about what's happening at Al-Rantisi Children's Hospital in Gaza City and the overall collapse of the medical system in Gaza? We saw a tweet of yours a few days ago asking, had the hospital been bombed, you have a war there, the only one for uh, children with cancer. 
Yeah, in 2019, we opened the first and only pediatric oncology department in the Gaza Strip based on the fact that every child prior to that, every single child in Gaza with cancer had to travel outside for care that they couldn't get locally. And that was a problem because that required permits from the Israeli military, which were often either delayed or not provided for these kids with cancer. So we opened, we started a campaign through grassroots fundraising and raised enough money to open a cancer department in the, in the main pediatric hospital in Gaza City, where um, since 2019 until October 7th, child, hundreds of children at life-saving care, professional care, um, through local services and through the support of our international teams coming in. We provide chemotherapy, drugs, child life services, and training for doctors and nurses in that department, in addition to any other support those kids possibly need. Now, since October 7th, obviously, um, due to the um, co conflict on the ground in Gaza, um, the services there have been disrupted significantly. However, the department itself is full of children, full of patients with cancer, and in addition, their families who are seeking refuge. Many of them have had their homes uh, destroyed and have no other place to go. So the part department itself and the hospital itself is full of refugees, full of people seeking shelter and seeking aid. Um, and in addition to that, uh, the doctors who provide, the oncologists who work at that hospital had to flee Gaza City or have not been able to access the hospital on a regular basis to provide therapy and treatment for the patients. And some of the nurses themselves have had um, their homes destroyed and family members killed, and they continue to provide services as much as they can. However, uh, two days ago, um, there was a, th a threat to Gaza, uh, to the hospital itself, and it was struck yesterday, uh, tw about 30 hours ago, it was struck by uh, a rocket. And the floor above the department was uh, destroyed and part of the department itself was destroyed, killing some children and not in the department itself, but in the hospital and destroying part of the department that we had built. Now, as of today, uh, and some of the family members have fled, but unfortunately, there's no place. We're trying to get them south out of Gaza City, so possibly evacuating them out of Gaza and getting them continued care in Egypt or in Jordan. But unfortunately, Gaza itself is encircled. And uh, now, as of now, uh, there, there was a report this morning from the Israeli military that they're demanding the evacuation of the hospital because um, they consider it a combat area. And unfortunately, a lot of the families have no place to go. Um, they have no place to be evacuated to. And um, there's still literally hundreds of children and patients within that hospital. Uh, and the increasing sound of uh, sh bombings and shootings around the department, uh, around the hospital, is increasingly making it difficult for anybody to leave at this time. And Steve Sosby, could you talk about what the uh, the lack of medical care was for the children in Gaza even before October 7th and, and before the uh, is the beginning of this uh, horrific round of Israeli attacks? Yeah, so we started our organization over 30 years ago during the first intifada to provide medical care for children who were getting who were being injured on the ground um, as a result of the the uprising and the um, use of force against the civilian population in the West Bank and Gaza. And over the years, evolved into an organization that brings volunteer medical teams in on a regular basis to the Gaza Strip and West Bank to provide free specialized medical care to those kids. And over the last few years, we've been the main organization on the ground in Gaza, bringing in international teams of volunteers uh, with providing a variety of different kinds of specialized surgical services and medical services, including pediatric oncology, pediatric cardiac surgery, pediatric neurosurgery, um, general pediatric surgery, orthopedics, so on and so forth which don't exist or are underdeveloped within the health sector in Gaza in an attempt to fill this significant gap of children not having access to quality specialized care and not being able to access that care that may exist in the West Bank or may exist outside of Gaza. We were developing those services locally within the Gaza Strip and treating thousands of children a year in Gaza with this very specialized service 
is. Unfortunately, and this is how Dr. Zinn got stuck in Gaza, is that we have teams rotating on a regular basis in Gaza from all over the world. And she was there at the time of the closure, along with another specialist who was developing artificial limbs for amputees, children who are amputees. Um, and unfortunately, there is there are literally thousands of kids in Gaza, in addition, in addition to those who are being injured now. And we already know that number is graphically high, um, that there's thousands of kids in Gaza who have non-trauma-related injuries who need medical care, kids who are born with congenital defects, kids with heart problems, kids with cancer, kids with cystic fibrosis, kids on dialysis. These are children in addition to those thousands of kids who've been injured over the past month who need specialized care they can't get in Gaza. And as a result of the hospitals now running out of fuel and not able to provide services, as a result of hospitals running out of drugs and services, as a result of specialists and being killed and being injured or not able to access the treatment centers as a result of hospitals closing, thousands of children in Gaza, in addition to those who are being injured, are going without specialized care, and many of them are even dying. And that's actually a huge concern to us. And we hope that um, we're able to get these kids out as quickly as possible to provide them care outside if they cannot get care within Gaza. But of course, we're asking more importantly for a ceasefire and enabling our medical teams who are standing by, ready to go to Gaza and continue to provide services there. We have several surgical missions ready to go at a moment's notice, if we can access Gaza and be able to relieve the doctors there and provide those services directly to those kids. Yeah, I'd like to bring in Dr. Barbara Zinn, the pediatrician who traveled to Gaza to support the relief efforts of the of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Uh, Dr. Zinn, could you talk about your experience while you were there uh, uh, during this uh, bomb, Israeli bombardment? Um, yeah, I arrived on um, October November, I can't remember which one, October 6th, uh, for a three-day mission to see about 100 children that the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund is sponsoring with chronic diseases. And then the morning after I arrived, I was uh, just walking along the beach and saw those missiles fired. And after that, ended up um, joining other humanitarian aid um, staff and volunteers going over the next month, going to, you know, three different UN sites for safety and finally one last place and then um, getting there the day that the Rafa border opened with our names on a list to exit. Dr. Barberson, talk about why you got involved um, with Palestine Children's Relief Fund and then what it was like. If you can take us on that journey, uh, you were one of— um, a number of um, foreigners, uh, specialists, humanitarian relief workers inside Gaza um, as the bombardment began. Can you talk about where you went, whether you were able to get clean water, more importantly, um, everyone around you, not more importantly, but equally, everyone around you, how you took shelter? You were on TV. We saw you as a bomb went off next to you. You jumped. Um, well, yes. I mean, I was fortunate, much more fortunate than the Gazans themselves, in that um, we were able to, we had administration, the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund worked with other um, humanitarian organizations, and they could see safe places to move. Um, I've been with this organization since 2010, um, going over to the West Bank and Gaza almost every year, except for the years I couldn't because of COVID. And it's because of all the great things that they do. It's because they, the children that I see, I'm not a surgeon, but I feel they help fill in the gaps that medications, 
special schooling, everything that these children with chronic diseases can't get through the Ministry of Health. And that includes just diabetics getting insulin. And so so really life-saving medications that can't be fully provided through the governmental services and health services that are there. So throughout that month, we went, we started in Gaza City and with continuous bombardment, and then everyone was supposed to go to the south. We went to um, another UN facility in the south. That one was just thousands of people coming in the gates. Um, Usually people go to UN schools, but the UN schools were already full when they ordered the evacuation of the northern part of Gaza. And so people just went to this, it was a vocational school. So it really didn't have facilities. And uh, those people started building things right away. They took wooden pallets, they took bricks, they just started just building a place for their families. And these are extended families, so they are large families. Um, Palestinian Children's Relief Fund has a staff member who's in the last UN facility that we were at, and he's with 150 family members. He has eight children, he has 19 siblings. So um, his close relatives are 150 people and they are living um, in that southernmost camp. We were fortunate in that we had we had clean water delivered, but but for we and we had 50 people using one toilet versus 400 to 600 pe- people per toilet. I mean, even in our in our group of a lot of medical workers, we had an outbreak of, of diarrhea. I can't imagine what it was like um, out outside of our camp as far as that. They um, had limited water. They had a certain amount of drinking water, which ran out. Our drinking water started to run out. Definitely our water for for washing and um, running the toilet was running out right before we left. We were fortunate to have food, but at the last few days, we ended up computing how much food we needed for, for 50 people. And at 800 calories a day, we had enough for two days um, until we were able to have a driver go all the way to Gaza City, a dangerous drive to bring some other foods. But I don't know what, but we knew that the grocery stores were going to be empty. But out in the camp, they were giving one pita bread per person and, and initially um, a can of meat for two people. And then that went down to four people while we were there. So so the United Nations was supplied, supplying some food, but so limited for those people. I wanted and to Dr. Zinn, go ahead. Dr. Well. Zinn, I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering about the the issue, not just of the uh, of the life and death uh, of travails that the Palestinian people are confronting with this uh, bombing. But also, if you could talk some about the what you see in terms of the mental health, the long term, tr- we, we're talking about a population Uh, a complete population that's been traumatized now for years and now especially with this bombing. Your sense of what the mental health needs of these children will be for years to come. Well, I think um, a lot of times I've destroyed Gaza on a good day. So in these other missions that I've gone to Gaza, they're just constantly constantly under siege, really. I mean, food is limited a lot. I mean, fishermen can only go out so far and and that's they can't go to the international water boundaries for fishing and so food is always limited medications are limited um 65 percent of gazans are on humanitarian aid all the time so when we talk about humanitarian aid coming in it's not just for this conflict i mean they're always needing humanitarian aid based on limitations of food and clean water there's no surface water um so these children live under that stress all the time. They're wonderful, resilient people, but I, I can't imagine, you know, 
what it's like to be a child and be with a family that's moving around has really no place to go that's safe. I wanted to bring Steve Sosby back into the conversation. This is Israeli Ambassador Gilad Erdan, who was interviewed on uh, uh, CNN on Sunday. There is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza. In coordination with the U.S. and the U.N., we allowed the number of trucks uh, entering Gaza now with food and medicines to reach almost 100 trucks uh, every day. So we don't see the need for humanitarian pauses right now because it will only enable Hamas to rearm and regroup. Your response to this, Steve Sosby, he doesn't see—this is the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations—he uh, doesn't see a humanitarian crisis on the ground right now. And if you can also weave in, for example, the children in your cancer ward, how are they possibly getting chemotherapy right now? Well, that's an interesting point of view. It's coming from a political perspective and not a realistic one and not based on reality. The fact is on the ground that there is an obvious humanitarian crisis. This is described not only by people on the ground there, but by the United Nations and by other, uh, let's say, objective uh, points of view. The humanitarian crisis is obvious. There's no, there's no fuel that's been delivered to Gaza since October 7th. And what does that mean? Well, all of the hospitals in Gaza, every single one of them depends on fuel to run generators. They're not connected to the electrical grid because the electrical grid's shut down since October 7th, 11th. So that then even, it was, even when it was operating, it only provided electricity for three or four hours a day, as we all know, prior to October uh, 7th. So therefore, the hospitals are running out of fuel. They're not able to operate. They're not able to provide ventilation for children in the intensive care unit who are severely injured, and there's hundreds of them. They're not able to provide electricity for babies in incubators in the neonatal units. Increasingly, the fuel's running out. We know that in Shifa Hospital, there's only one generator working now. The Indonesian hospital has run out of fuel, uh, and other hospitals have closed. In, uh, so I don't know what humanitarian crisis he's not seen. In addition to that, as Dr. Zinn just mentioned, children and people there are on a significant calorie diet, and that's affecting the entire population. 1.5 million people in Gaza out of 2.2 are displaced. They're living in uh, warehouses, in tents, in other uh, in makeshift uh, places, in UN schools. And those schools are being hit. There are no safe places in Gaza. We've seen the casualty tools you mentioned at the beginning of this program of over 4,000 children uh, who've been killed so far in one month. 4,000 children. That would be hundreds of thousands of American children children if that was compared to our population in the U.S. And that's not counting the over 1,000 children who are buried under rubble, some of them alive right now, slowly dying. And that's not a humanitarian crisis. The lack of medication, doctors are operating on children without anesthesia, without pain medication. That's not a humanitarian crisis. There's over 200 children who are burned from bombing of their homes and the doctors don't have dressings. They don't have anesthesia. These kids are getting Tylenol while they have third degree burns all over their bodies. That's not a humanitarian crisis. I don't know what world he's living in or what world he's watching, but the, for those of us who are actually watching with open eyes and open hearts and open minds, this is a humanitarian crisis that we've never seen before, and it's 2023. This is unacceptable that this is happening in this modern world, and it's happening with modern weapons, and these modern weapons are being paid for by our American tax dollars. Now, your question about the children in the cancer department, they are running out of drugs. They're running out of chemotherapy. They're running out of adequate treatment. The kids who are in remission are falling out of remission. There's, there's literally dozens of children in Gaza with cancer who are not getting adequate care, not because they don't have the facility to get that care. We built that and opened it in 2019. It's an excellent facility. They're not getting care, not because the doctors there aren't qualified and the nurses aren't qualified to treat them. They are. They're not getting care because their hospital right now is under attack. It's been hit by a, a – it was bombed two days ago. The doctors don't have access. The nurses don't have access. The children themselves – 
are living in a, a state of absolute terror, as was mentioned earlier. If we want to talk about the mental health situation, it's affecting the entire population in Gaza Strip, and it's going to be a generational conflict or a generational issue. How do you solve a, an entire population that's been ex- exposed to conflict and war? Children. Over one million children have been traumatized now, and they're going to live the rest of their lives with this trauma, and it's impossible to treat it. Why? Because the source of the trauma is not going away. It's not post-traumatic stress disorder. It's it's current traumatic stress. And we can't solve it. We have a mental health program. We can't heal these children. We can't heal their hearts. We can't heal heal their souls. And we can't heal their bodies until this conflict stops. And it's not going to stop until there's a political will on the part of everybody who believes in peace, in justice, in freedom, in equality, to take a stand and put an end to this situation once and for all. Steve Sosby, I want to thank you for being with us, president and founder of Palestine Children's Relief Fund, speaking to us from Kent, Ohio. And Dr. Barbara Zinn, pediatrician who traveled to Gaza October 6th to support the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. She was finally evacuated through the Rafah border crossing weeks later and arrived back home in Grand Junction, Colorado, this week. Next up, we'll look at how President Biden's refusal to support a Gaza ceasefire could impact his reelection chances next year, as his support among Arab Americans is plummeting. Back in 30 seconds. Trump, um, Boris connected like plug sockets. Love, profit, want to mug us off, bruv, we must stop it. One topic, low key and 47, unlock it. One topic, low key and 47, unlock it. Exploiting our difference, they poison the infants. A voice from the distance, our choice is resistance. Parasites want to snatch your life, so I slap them twice when I grab the mic. Nationalize our abdicating and pass them when we fraternize. Revenge of the pedagogues, censorship never stops. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend to tell the cops. Sent to offend the mob, lengthen the renaissance. Heroes getting shot, left to rock, legends lost. Out here it's madness, got to hold your ground. Ground by Palestinian Jordanian group 47 Soul featuring Low Key. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. No ceasefire, no votes. And in November, we remember those were two chants we heard Saturday in Washington at the largest rally in U.S. history for Palestinian rights. Protesters denounced President Biden for refusing to support a ceasefire in Gaza while sending more arms to Israel as it continues its month-long bombardment that's killed over 10,000 Palestinians, including 4,000 children. Polls show Biden's support among Arab Americans is plummeting. This is Nahadawad, the head of CARE, that's the Council on American-Islamic Relations, speaking at Saturday's rally. No ceasefire, no votes. No ceasefire, no votes. No votes in Michigan. No votes in Arizona. No votes in Georgia. No votes in Nevada. No votes in Wisconsin. No votes in Pennsylvania. No votes in Ohio. 
No votes for you anywhere. If you do not call for a ceasefire now, we will make our voices heard more and more. In November, we remember. In November, we remember. Now, Hadawad, uh, head of CARE, said he was speaking in his own capacity. We are joined now by Jim Zogby, president of the Arab American Institute, joining us from Washington, D.C. Uh, it's great to have you with us. And if you can talk about these figures that I'm sure the White House is looking at carefully. In 2020, um, President Biden had something like 59 support of the Arab American community. Right now, it's at something like 17 percent. James Zogby, if you can talk about Biden's stance right now on Israel and Gaza. Thanks, Amy. Uh, it's been a long time since we've been together, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you. Um, look, yeah, the poll is one that we did um, to get a read on the community. Um, I have never seen in the 27 years we've been polling, my brother and I have been polling Arab Americans. We never saw a, a, a movement this dramatic over this short a period of time. The last time we polled uh, Arab Americans was just a few months ago. And the drop since then has been even more precipitous than the drop since 2020. Uh, this issue resonates. It's big. Uh, it's important. It also is part of a general national trend. Um, Arab Americans are not immune from the, what the rest of the culture is feeling is, and that is that President Biden just is not in control of, uh, his own presidency and how he is uh, being portrayed, uh, to the American people and to the world. They didn't elect a Reaganite, um, foreign policy, uh, advocate, a, a neocon who was fighting for freedom there to have freedom here, that kind of rhetoric that comes from the White House. They voted for somebody that focus on a whole bunch of domestic issues to bring, uh, domestic peace and tranquility after four years of Donald Trump. And that's not what they've gotten. And I, I, I think that coupled with the Gaza situation most certainly is driving these negative, these negative numbers. They are deeply disappointed. With the position he's taken on this this conflict, and uh, and they they just uh, are are jumping ship. And Jim Zogby, could you talk about the, um, uh, the some other aspects of the poll, uh, uh, what the support for a ceasefire was, and also whether there were uh, gender or age or, or religious differences in in those you polled. What was really significant was that uh, across the board, when you get numbers that high, uh, a flip that high or or numbers in the 70 percent range on several questions like support for a ceasefire or how important is the Palestinian issue to you or how disappointed are you with the president's performance on this issue? All of those numbers were two thirds or greater. When you get numbers that great, you expect across the board to see the crosstabs reading that way. And, and we did. Uh, there was virtually uh, no difference in terms of majorities, um, regardless of religion, regardless of, uh, of um, whether born here or immigrant um, or a gender or age, um, pretty much across the board. There's frustration and deep disappointment with this with this president. And um, uh, and, and the question I keep getting asked is, uh, can, can Biden win him back? Uh the visceral reaction to this issue is so great that in order to do that, something dramatic has to come from the White House. And I'm not sure that the president has the wherewithal to do it. Look, I've heard two things from people at the White House. The one is uh, they're not going to vote for, for, for Donald Trump. 
because they don't want, uh, you know, they don't want back what he was doing uh, during his four years. And so they'll come around in a year. I told them that when I heard that, I said, that's insulting and dismissive. Um, uh, you have to earn that vote. They might just as well stay home. Uh, they might vote for for uh, Cornell West. They might they might just not vote at all. Uh, and and it's not a given that young Arab American women who want control over their bodies and their health care, that young or that older Arab Americans who want protection for their their you know Medicare or an expansion of health care, it's not clear that they're going to make the decision to vote at all if they don't have something to vote for. It worked the last time. Vote for me because I'm not the other guy. I'm not quite sure it'll work. It'll work this time. And, you know, I've got a, an article coming out in The Nation tomorrow that makes the point that it's not just Arab Americans who are affected this way. It's young people. It's progressive Jews. Um, it's black, Latino Asian voters, there's a significant decline that this president is encountering across the board. And, and you know, Gaza is playing into it. It is a, a sort of a canary in the coal mine issue. It's a uh, it's one that sort of is the, the speaking to a broader sense of dissatisfaction. And the White House has to get a handle on that and not not just dismiss it. And speaking of broader sense of dissatisfaction, you worked with Bernie Sanders for two of his campaigns. Uh, How do you understand his insistence only on calling for a humanitarian pause and not a ceasefire? And Juan, let me play a clip of Bernie Sanders, uh, who was interviewed this weekend um, on CNN. I want to just clarify one thing, Senator, if I might. You support a humanitarian pause in Gaza. Some of your fellow progressives say that there should be a full-on ceasefire, which would require an agreement on both sides to halt the fighting. Do you support a ceasefire? And if not, why not? Well, I don't know how you can have a ceasefire, permanent ceasefire, with an organization like Hamas, which is dedicated to turmoil and chaos and destroying the state of Israel. And I think what the Arab countries in the region understand, that Hamas has got to go. That was Bernie Sanders being interviewed by Dana Bash of CNN. Um, in fact, just a few days ago, uh, Bernie Sanders' office was occupied by uh, by a group of progressives uh, protesting that he wasn't calling for a ceasefire, among other senators. Jim Zogby. Look, you know, I, I have no idea. I've, I've, I've called the senator, uh, didn't get a call back, left them a couple of messages, text messages, didn't didn't hear back. Um and I'm disappointed and and fr- frankly confounded. I, I don't understand uh, the thinking here. Uh, one could easily take the sentence that he spoke about you don't have a ceasefire with a group like Hamas that blah, 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 and stick in the Netanyahu government uh, of the most extreme rightists uh, in the country uh, that are today, while under the cover of Gaza, uh, uh, taking uh, armed settlers uh, to evacuate Palestinian villages and force people uh, to leave their lands, leave their their uh, their their orchards and uh, uh, and their homes. Um, this is a crazy extremist government. And and yes, Hamas is uh, is a group that has done and does evil things, just like the Netanyahu government does evil things. The question is, that's why you need a ceasefire. Um, and to say we can't have peace with them 
It's what the Palestinians say. We can't have peace with with the Netanyahu government. But the problem is that the the United States has to act like the adult in the room, and we haven't. We've been the cheerleader, the coat holder, the enabler, and the funder of one side, uh, digging the hole deeper every single day. And the result is, is that we're locked in a conflict here on Israel's side that has no good end in sight. Um, those who think on this path will eliminate Hamas, forget what happened in Beirut in 82, forget what happened in Lebanon in 2006, or what happened in Afghanistan or Iraq. You don't eliminate. What you do is you create the conditions for something more virulent afterwards. You're not going to get rid of Hamas. I mean, the, the, the million plus people who've been forced to leave their belongings, their memories, the neighborhoods that they lived in, now reduced to rubble and flee to the south where there's no infrastructure to take care of them. The families of the 10,000 who've died, 4,000 of whom children, they're not going to say when this is over, if it's ever over, oh, we love Israel, let's have peace. There is going to be the seed, there are the seeds being planted today um, for Hamas 2.0 or something more virulent. And and I don't understand how the the folks in the White House or the State Department just don't get it and say, this is not going to end well. At the end of this path, with the exception of more dead bodies, more anger, and more virulent extremism, we're going to be right back where we started. Uh, It's a failure of the United States, not of Hamas and and of Israel, but the United States. We have not shown the leadership um, that we ought to be showing, given the fact that we're funding this damn thing, uh, to stop it. And James Ogden, you've been for decades now an expert in uh, in public opinion and polling. And it's not just uh, the United States or, uh, or England and France where we're seeing unprecedented demonstrations in support of the uh, the Palestinians and opposed to Israeli bombardment and, and the invasion, but also across the global south. You, uh, in, in the rest of the world, uh, outside of the Western countries, there's virtually uh, no support uh, for the United States uh, uh, policies and, and Israel. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, and we've just finished a poll in 12 Arab countries. I should add, my brother does the domestic polling. Uh, we played the game of risk, and, and he took one side of the board, and I got the other side of the board. I do polling in the Middle East and, and some polling in Europe. Uh, we've done some polling on Ukraine and with European countries, uh, their attitude toward it. But in the Arab world, um, uh, we, we've blown it. Uh, there wasn't actually much of a bounce when Joe Biden got elected. The damage done by George W. Bush um, the disappointment in Obama making promises in Cairo that excited people and then blaming the Arabs for not delivering on the promises he made. Um, and then Trump and the, the, the chaos of four years. Uh, people have told me there, uh, we've been on a roller coaster with your country for the last 20 years. And frankly, we're dizzy right now. We don't know what we're getting. Um, they, they too hoped for calm when Joe Biden got elected. And instead of calm, they have two big wars uh, and they're being forced to choose. And frankly, they can't because they have decided, uh, as European countries are deciding, um, that they have to make their own decisions and they have to do what's in their interest. And their people are watching what is happening in Gaza and saying, hell no, we're not going to do this anymore. Even countries that have made peace with Israel, uh, their public opinion has turned decidedly against uh, Israel and decidedly against uh, the prospect of living in harmony with that country. Damage has been done here. 
And I don't understand in all of my conversations with people at the White House and the State Department that they don't just get it. I, I don't I don't know what they're taking in the morning that makes them think today is going to be a better day. Israel's going to kill more people and ever, Arabs are going to say, let's have peace with Israel. That It doesn't work that way. And I, I've been down this road now for the last 40, 50 years doing this work full time. And frankly, it gets worse, not better. And those who think you you win a victory in a war where you kill lots of civilians, um, their heads aren't screwed on right. And frankly, um, we, we need new thinking on this. But the guys in the White House uh, aren't capable, I think, of that kind of new thinking. And it's really it's deeply disturbing because the hole we're digging is one it's going to take a generation to get out of. Jim Zogby, I want to ask you a few quick questions. I see you have a TV behind you and I was looking to see if there was a crack in the screen uh, because I was wondering of your co- your comments on the coverage by the mainstream media, a word you almost never hear. And I'm not talking about Fox. I'm talking about MSNBC and CNN, places where you appear. Um, rarely do we hear the word occupation mm-hmm. and why that is so significant in understanding how to end this. We're not just talking about Gaza. We're talking about the West Bank. Um, when you had the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, saying uh, right before October 7th, you know, it's peaceful there in the Middle East. We're moving on to other issues. Yet at that time, you had at least a Palestinian a day being killed in the West Bank by settlers or by the Israeli military. Now, I think since October 7th, the number is well over 150. Um, the OPT, the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Gaza and the West Bank, um, question how we should be talking about this issue, what you think would be the most honest. And do you think there's a difference between Biden and Trump, not on other domestic issues, but on Israel-Palestine? Bill Biden promised us a lot. Uh, he issued not just the platform plank the, the, that was one that they made some accommodations uh, to us about, but uh, they issued a separate policy statement for Arab Americans. And um, and I remember when we wanted language that talked about the equality of, of human needs and rights, and they issued that statement uh, that both Israelis and Palestinians are equally deserving of, and then there were a litany of words that followed it. Uh, three, three and a half years later, we're still waiting for the delivery on the equal promise of. Uh, all the Palestinians have gotten has been a green light for Israel to run roughshod over the West Bank, uh, take more land, build more settlements, demolish more homes, more restrictions on Palestinian rights, uh, Jerusalem the same, and Gaza worse. Um, it's been a huge disappointment. And um, uh, and frankly, I, I don't um, – I, I recall some interesting things in the platform debate that I, that still troubled me because I remember back in 88 when I was negotiating with, with Madeleine Albright uh, on the, the Dukakis-Jackson platform issue, we wanted the word Palestinian in the platform. And the, uh, she told me, she said, if the P word even appears um, in print – uh, in the Democratic Party platform, all hell will break loose. I told her, I said, don't play chicken little with me. The sky's not going to fall. We can do it and get and, and and live with it. I mean, it's 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 not rocket science to say there are Palestinians in this conflict. The party had never even mentioned the word up till then. And it didn't that year either. Um, what troubled me in 2016 and 2020 um, was that we couldn't get the word occupation in the platform. They wouldn't use the word occupation. 
which was Trump language. Trump wouldn't use occupation either. In fact, they changed the human rights report from reporting on the occupied territories to com- putting it all in one in one thing. That was uh, uh, that was the the, the green uh, the what do you call it the uh, U.S. ambassador Friedman. Uh, Trump's ambassador wanted it that way. There was no occupation. The Biden administration deals with it as if it were an occupation uh, in in language, but not in practice, not in practice. We have not put conditions or terms on Israel to deal with Palestinians as an occupied people. Um, and so um, we've kind of come a ways, but we haven't come anywhere at all. From not using the P word to not using the occupation word, um, frankly, it's a maybe a little a bit of a semantic thing. But Palestinians are living under a brutal occupation. It's an apartheid occupation, um, and they are also being victims of a genocidal attack on Gaza right now that is killing the infrastructure, killing the people, forcibly evicting over a million people from their homes in the north to move south where there is no capacity to care for them. They're living in tents without water, without power, without health care. The hospitals in the South are not capable of dealing with all the issues. Um, and the Israelis are treating the people in the North as if, as the general says, they're all animals and deserve to die. Um, if that's not genocide, I don't know what is. And yet this administration, if they can't use the word occupation, and for God's sake, they won't use the word apartheid, they can't use the word genocide. Something horrible is happening to these people. And this administration is turning a blind eye to it. And I'm sorry, but when they say we're deeply concerned, if that's the best they can do, when we're providing $14.3 billion additional this year on top of $4 billion, when we're providing diplomatic cover at the United Nations, that is not enough. And frankly, this, what is happening in Gaza is not only happening on our watch, but we're complicit and enabling it. Sounds harsh, but it's the reality and they have to deal with it. And there are going to be electoral consequences. And I, I wish it weren't so. Last thing on earth I want to see is a Republican of the type of Donald Trump or whoever comes after in the White House. But they have to earn the vote and establish that there's a difference. They haven't done it. James Zogby, president of the Arab American Institute, joining us from Washington, D.C. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Donald Trump took the witness stand Monday in a civil fraud case brought by the state of New York against the former president, his sons and his businesses. Trump was repeatedly admonished by Judge Arthur Angoran for testimony that veered off topic, lashed out against the court and New York Attorney General Letitia James, whom Trump called a political hack. James is seeking $250 million after accusing Trump, his oldest two sons, the Trump Organization and company executives of inflating the value of assets. The judge has already ruled Trump liable for fraud. The trial determines how much the Trumps will pay in damages. For more, we're joined by Lauren Artani, reporter for The Guardian U.S., who's been attending the trial. Her most recent piece headlines speeches and grandstanding. Trump scores few, if any, legal points in court. So you were there. Lauren, if you can describe the scene, but also contrast um, his hurling epithets, getting angry, his face getting red with the documentary evidence that's been presented in this trial. 
Yeah, the scene was pretty incredible to witness. Um, I mean, not only is there the typical media circus that surrounds Donald Trump, but then you also have it in a very, you know, what's supposed to be civilized courtroom. It's very quiet. There are no cameras or recordings allowed. Um, so really, it's just the prosecutor asking Donald Trump, the witness on the stand, um, these questions. Um, so what we, what we saw a lot yesterday was Trump would often kind of get into these rants, as I mentioned in my piece, um, and really it kind of was reminiscent of what he was like at his rallies, where he would really go off um, a bit off topic on election interference or you know, crime in New York City, kind of, you know, saying that New York Attorney General Letitia James, you know, who's been attending the trial every day, um, you know, kind of making the case that she's wasting her time, um, saying that the case is unfair. Um, and of course, what the prosecutors have been doing with Trump and his adult sons last week um, is showing these documents where essentially um, the Trump family signed um, bank agreements, um, you know, term agreements with these banks who gave them loans. Um, saying that their financial statements were fair and accurate. Um, so you have a lot of these documents, emails, um, these, you know, things that are being pulled up in front of Trump. And, you know, he's basically saying that, um, you know, he kind of relied a lot on this idea of a worthless clause, um, which is basically that the banks knew not to take, I guess, the Trump organization for its words when it came to these financial statements. And of course, the judge in his pretrial judgment had written that the worthless cause argument is in itself worthless. Um, so we saw a lot of that yesterday, a lot of Trump basically, um, you know, doing what he does, except, you know, the only person that really matters in this courtroom is the judge. And he even seemed to kind of, you know, express a lot of frustration toward him. And, and Lauren, at the beginning of the trial, Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, testified that Trump had directed him to manipulate financial statements. Uh, how does Cohen's testimony fit into the broader context of the trial? And was Trump questioned about that testimony? Yeah, so Trump wasn't questioned directly on Michael Cohen's testimony. But um, what Trump was asked, so basically Michael Cohen testified that he, along with two of Trump's top finance executives. There's Alan Weiselberg, who used to be chief financial officer of the Trump Organization, and Jeff McConney, who is uh, Trump, the Trump organization, organization controller. Basically, um, he would say that, you know, Mike, Trump would direct the three of them to essentially increase his net worth on the financial statements. Um, Cohen, you know, basically wasn't necessarily that uh, specific on, you know, the, the um, assets that he was asked to increase on the financial statement. But there was briefly a document that was pulled up that he had confirmed that, um, you know, Trump in handwritten notes had basically um, instructed them to increase their assets. But Trump wasn't questioned directly on um, Cohen's testimony. That was a few weeks ago. Uh, we just have 30 seconds. But what do you think is the big takeaway? Trump testified now. He's expected to testify again when the defense presents their case. His daughter, Ivanka, is going to be testifying. Talk about the significance overall, if you were surprised by anything, Lauren. Right. Like, I think, you know, what we've been seeing a lot lately is um, I, read a, a, I wrote a, few, a piece a few weeks ago that was basically talking about how what we've, we've been seeing is this trial within a trial. We have the trial that's in the courtroom. Um, you know, there's no jury. It's just a judge 
basically deciding whether Donald Trump would be paying a $250 million fine. Um, but then there's also the trial that he sees as more important, which is in the court of public opinion. Um, we definitely saw that yesterday. We're seeing that last week with um, Trump's sons when they, you know, were saying that they don't recall, that they, you know, in angry times, they also were very much, you know, kind of going on um, their own little angry seconds. kind of rants. And so, yeah, a lot of what we're seeing is just politics in the courtroom. Well, we're going to do part two and post online at democracynow.org. Lauren Artani, reporter for The Guardian U.S. Happy belated birthday to John Hamilton and Emily Anderson. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.